0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two
0: of The Feast of Crabs. Uh, If you haven't heard part one, you should probably go back and listen to that one first,
1: Uh, but I'm ready to jump right in. Yeah, we're ge- we're gonna continue with our exploration of various uh, accounts of crabs eating curious things, eating things in curious ways, and so forth. Uh, this is kind of our become a tradition during the um, the holidays towards the end of the the year to dive into a crab related topic and uh, see what it has for us. Now, uh, we haven't talked a lot about mythology and folklore in, uh, in our crab journey thus far. And, you know, part of it is when you look around, crabs often don't have central roles in, um, in myth cycles. I mean, there I think there are some exceptions to the rule, but a lot of times it's stuff like uh, like Hercules is fighting the Hydra and then a crab shows up. And tries to to, uh, to nip at his heels, and he dispatches it, and goes back to fighting the Hydra, that sort of thing.
0: Oh, yeah, that sounds. It was, so that's the the crab cancer, right? That we yeah. get the constellation
1: name from, or that yeah. has the same name as the constellation. I mean, he still gets a constellation out of the whole affair, but it's you know, it's it's it it can feel a bit disappointing if you're really into crab uh, uh, anatomy and into crab monster movies. Um, it can be a little, a little bit of a letdown. Like, come on, can't Hercules have more of a battle? Can't he just battle the crab? That sounds fun to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh wait, I, I just had to look this up because I wasn't sure if I was remembering it right. But yeah, he he gets the constellation basically because Hera hates Heracles. Mm -hmm. And the crab, like, bites him on the foot, and then uh, Heracles kills the crab, and Hera's like, well, good job biting him on
1: the foot, I'll put you in the sky forever. (laughs) Ah, the Greek gods. (laughs) Well, uh, I do have a fun one that I found, though, that I want to share with everybody. Uh, This one I discovered in the book Japanese Mythology A to Z by Jeremy Roberts, uh, I looked around to try and find it some other places as well and didn't offhand. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure it can be found other places, but uh, this is the only place I was able to f- find it. I'm going to retell it for you here, but I'll stress that uh, Jeremy Roberts' telling of it is uh, is going to be more dramatic than mine. So, definitely go to that source if you want to uh, see it for yourself. Okay. So, this is how it goes down. A young girl... Uh, buys a crab from a fisherman in order to save the crab's life. She's doing, you know, the basic thing that a a lot of little kids will do where they suddenly, you know, they'll feel sorry for um, a captive animal or a food animal and they want to to save it. And so that's what this girl does. She buys the crab, lets it go. Meanwhile, her father is in a similar scenario. Uh, He's trying to save a frog from a snake uh i'm not sure why but he's trying to do this he's like no snake you do not get to eat this frog i'm not gonna let you do it and the snake finally is like okay look i'll spare the frog's life but you have to let me marry your daughter and dad (laughs) agrees
0: (laughs) so we we don't know anything about this frog it's not special like
1: it wasn't his brother who got turned into a frog or something There has to be more to this story. Um, You you know, I've I've been reading a lot about various yokai recently. And, you know, with with those Chinese ghost stories, there's often some hidden meaning. You know, maybe it comes down to a a turn of phrase, you know, something that's not going to be obvious in a pure English translation or it's something metaphorical, etc. So I don't know exactly what is going on here. But I I think it, it can't just be the fact that dad just loves frogs and loves frogs more than he loves his daughter. Um, but at any rate, this is the scenario we find ourselves in. Okay. So what happens? Well, that night, the snake arrives, but arrives in human form and tries to claim his bride. And so dad at this point has not even warned his daughter of, about what he agreed to. Uh, oh, so no. he's <laughs> he's able to buy a little time. He's like, look, look, just come back in a few days. And the snake agrees. So dad has a little opportunity here to talk with his daughter. He tells her what has happened, and she is rightfully horrified. She hides away in her room, and she prays to the gods for delivery from this, uh, this snaky fate. And the gods do not answer her prayers because they are too busy putting crabs in the sky. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah, it doesn't seem that the, the gods are, are listening to her. And uh, meanwhile, you know, the, 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 the two days pass, and here comes the snake again. Only this time, the snake has come in its serpentine form, its animal form. It enters her room, and just when it seems that she is completely abandoned to this fate, a thousand crabs burst through the door <gasps> and consume the snake. Just, a, you know, completely uh, deflesh it. A thousand crabs? Mm hmm. And so I guess the idea is like this is that that she spared the crab earlier. And so she had uh, she had a friend in the crabs and or you could also look at it like the gods did uh, actually reward her. They were listening and they allowed all these crab saviors to come and uh, yeah. And yeah, save her from this snake. And she marries the swarm of crabs. I don't know, maybe, but but I, I love this because it's also like, oh man, this is something you could have like a swarm of crabs te- tearing an enemy apart like that. That should be in a, a film somewhere. Uh, somehow this whole thing could be adapted into some sort of a, uh, like a weird um, horror tale. Yeah, crabs are not usually the hero of a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this is maybe the only one I've really been able to find so far. But, hey, if you know some good <laughs> crab hero stories out there, write in because we'd love to hear for, from you. Because, yeah, generally it seems like crabs are going to be a minor character. Uh, you know, think of the, Disney's The Little Mermaid, right? The crab is just there to be a friend to Ariel the mermaid. Uh, and I guess maybe he comes through uh, a time or two. But he's, he's not the focus. He's not the, he's not the big central hero.
0: But, you know, I think it's a kind of mechanically intuitive pairing to have snakes and crabs together in a tale like this.
1: Yeah, it does seem like it's something that uh, storytellers around the world have come back to uh, a few times. Um, For instance, there's uh, this crab-snake duology in uh, the Aesop fable, The Snake and the Crab. Uh, Also, speaking of Disney movies... Uh, It factors into Disney's *The Sword in the Stone*, which is a a King Arthur movie that uh, I I imagine a number of you have seen and are familiar with. It's an otherwise, in my opinion, it's it's kind of a boring film. It doesn't have a lot going on, except it has this fabulous wizard battle between Merlin and uh, this this evil witch who I think was created for the like. It's not. uh, Morgana or anything. It's just it's just this witch that he battles. Uh, Mab, I think her name is Mim. Um, I think mim-, mim or Mims. Mim. Yeah, I think you think you're right. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's a battle between between two magic users, and the the whole the, the rules of the battle are that they have to fight each other. Uh, no one can turn invisible. You can only transform into real world animals, not into to fantasy animals. And we're going to see who who winds up on top. So it's a fabulous sequence where they jump in and out of various animal forms and they 're and you know generally trying to counter each other, and in this it actually reminds me a lot of uh uh, of, uh, of another, of a Japanese story about foxes that are engaging in a similar competition. Uh, magical foxes who are transforming themselves into different forms, and like one transforms into this, and the other transforms into something to sort of uh, counter that, and it just keeps uh, going. And in this case, uh, one of them transforms uh, into a snake, and the other transforms into a crab in order to, of course, uh, clip that snake in half if it can.
0: Yeah, this comes back to that mechanically intuitive pairing I was talking about where I think people just have a natural tendency that goes like this. So first step, you see a thing that is longer than it is wide. And then second step, you automatically think about cutting or snipping it crosswise. So Mm -hmm. snakes are naturally long
1: and crabs have biological scissors on their legs. Yes. (laughs) Um, I also yeah, M- Mim is great in this. Uh, but also, I have to say that Merlin has a wonderful animated mustache. As long as we're we're focusing on Movember mustaches here, and it makes sense, right? Because we think of the like the the, the mouth parts of a crab. Uh, it's easy to to imply uh, some sort of a mustache going on there as well. Oh yeah, it fits right in there. Now, I want to say something else here I thought this is worth noting about the the crab, the crab form, and about how the the crab is just ultimately this winning design. In fact, it's such a winning design that according to a 2021 Harvard University study, the crab-like body plan evolved at least five times independently in both true crabs and false crabs. So that's at least five cases of Carcinization. Uh, this is a term that was coined by evolutionary biologist L.A. Borodale in 1916. And on top of this, the Harvard study points out that the crab body has been lost at least seven times. So this would be a process that they refer to as D uh, carcinization. So um, I I love this idea. I mean, this kind of falls into, I think, a popular meme about everything becoming crabs, about uh, how uh, given enough time, the crab form will be the form of everything because it just works so exceedingly well. No, I do enjoy that meme. I guess
0: technically, if we want to be pedantic, it's about certain types of arthropods. Like you've already got certain uh, a certain body plan to start with, and if you're starting there, things that are like you know lobsterish or some in one way or another often are shaped by their environment to become more crab-like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, thumbs up to the meme.
1: <laughs> so the the first crab I thought we might talk about here today, uh, sometimes referred to as the Yeti crab or the Hoff crab. Uh, it, its actual name is, is perhaps uh, better suited um, for this interesting creature. Now, there are a few different varieties, uh, but the uh, one of the, the first that was uh, really discovered that really set the trend is Kiwa hirsuta. Uh, Kiwa is the name of the Maori sea god, and then hirsuta is Latin for hairy. So uh, Kiwa hirsuta was discovered by a team from the Monterey Bay Aquarium in 2006, along the Pacific Antarctic Ridge, south of Easter Island. And it is a uh, is a wonderful looking creature. It's this pale, hairy looking crab, kind of elongated looking. I would say it looks a little bit like, you know, some sort of a lobster perhaps, uh, but it has no eyes and it lives on hydrothermal vents. So th- this discovery gave us not only a new species, but a new genus, uh, that Kiwa genus. And uh, there are other uh, Kiwa crabs that have popped up, including Kiwa uh, tyleri, found off the southern, uh, found in the Southern Ocean off of Antarctica. And this species is probably my favorite as, in my opinion, it's a little more cute looking. It's less elongated and it's more, it's more plump. It looks... Uh, uh, I don't know it just looks like uh like like it 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 belongs in a cartoon, you know, yes, and it's a great example
0: of uh the kinds of things we were just talking about with these sort of converging forms of different types of uh of marine arthropods because technically the kiwa genus are not uh, true crabs, I think they
1: are a type of lobster or mm-hmm. lobster related organism, but they are they're super cool i mean they're oh, so yeah. yeah. Focusing just on Tyleria here, uh, it has a tiny habitat, a mere oh. thermal envelope of a few square meters uh, deep along the East Scotia Ridge. Um, it's here that they live by these black smokers. These are vents, these uh, chimney-like vents that spew dark water that reaches temperatures of roughly 720 degrees Fahrenheit or 380 degrees Celsius. They live in heaps here, sometimes like 6,000 crabs per square meter. And they're cramped in here because outside of this narrow proximity to the black smokers, the ocean is extremely cold. Uh, so they're they're this fascinating example of extremophile life suspended between boiling eruptions and chilling darkness. Uh, like this is the, the the niche that they've carved out for themselves. It's also interesting to imagine how they would
0: spread between one vent to another. You know, you, you mm-hmm. almost have to imagine their lifestyle is like a. Uh, You know, living on these tiny islands in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So they're on these little little islands. And uh, and they're, they're jockeying position here, so you tend to find like the older, bigger crabs are are, are towards the, the, the center, towards the heat, and the adolescents are having to to scramble for position on the outside. Uh, meanwhile, the hot sulfur-rich zone is, is likely too much for their eggs, so the females uh, seem to have to crawl off into the colder, darker waters to brood, and they likely die there. They likely just don't have the energy. They expend all their energy going out to do that, and they can't make it back. But the, the females then – this releases a vast quantity of larvae into the water column, and some of these end up finding distant vents, others returning to their own vent. Um, uh, so you have yeah, – this is how we end up with, with, uh, with, with the, the larvae from, from uh, a particular uh, hydrothermal vent location potentially ending up at other vents. Yeah, like a lot of organisms in the ocean, they've got this sort of
0: broadcasting method of reproduction that allows allows uh the, the organisms to spread in their
1: in their larval forms. Yeah, I was reading a great article uh, about this in uh, on the BBC website by Jonathan Amos, wrote about them in 2018, and points out that, first of all, the last common ancestor of all these various Yeti crabs probably lived 30 to 40 million years ago in the Eastern Pacific. And so what we have here are these different far-flung ancestors uh, due to the successful colonization of hydrothermal vents by dispersed larvae. Um, and so the other, and then the crazy thing about all this too, is once they have found... Of a, a place to thrive. That doesn't mean that this is a forever home. Um, in Amos's words, these various vents quote switch on and off through time. So a vent that has this thriving population of uh, of, of yeti crabs around it may just suddenly turn off, and then everything around it just dies in the cold. Um, and then it may turn back on later. Uh, and then it's a place that uh, the larvae can can uh, can can arrive at, and life can sort of uh, begin again until such time as it just turns off. Returning to the island analogy, you have to imagine
0: like a small island that has a thriving ecosystem on it, and then suddenly it just gets like a dome clamped over it that turns it into a sub-zero freezer. And then mm-hmm. uh, at some point, maybe the dome is suddenly lifted and ex- it's exposed to the sun again.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and so. This is why any given species of Yeti crab has to ultimately maintain multiple footholds at different vents to survive. But it also drives home the delicate, how, just how delicate these vent environments are. Because um, if human activity wipes out, you know, potentially just like, it seems like just one or two of these vent habitats, they could potentially limit a given species' holdings to an unsustainable level, um, uh, it, uh, I don't know that researchers have really, like, worked out. I mean, we, we I, I don't think we know enough about, like, you know, all the different places uh, they live. But, yeah, it, it, basically the idea is we, we, we don't know just how delicate the situation is if they're mm. depending on vents that may, again, turn off and back on again at any given moment. They, they have to have a foothold in a certain number. And if you start digging into that number through deep-sea mining or some other uh, human venture, then, uh, yeah, you, you potentially put them in, a, in an unsustainable place. Won't someone think
0: of the deer crustaceans? I mean, they are so cute. I mean, it is uh, probably easier than, than with a lot of uh, arthropods in the ocean to generate sympathy for them because they, they look kind of like, yeah, these pale fuzzy ticks. Uh, I, that doesn't really evoke
1: sympathy, does it? But they, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're like plump and cute and I don't know. They're good. Well, also, Tyleria especially, if you look at a picture of them from, a, from above, it also kind of, looked, with the pale colorization, it looks like a human skull uh, from above. Like there's a human yeah. skull with skull-colored cover- uh, legs and claws coming out of it, which, again, doesn't sound very cute, I guess, but, um, but, but it, makes, it makes it a very interesting creature to look at. Now, I should uh, again stress that we have different varieties and they, uh, they have some different, um, uh, different features. For instance, Tyleri have special spikes for scaling up those chimneys of the black smokers. Uh, meanwhile, there's a species found near Costa Rica, uh, which is Kiwa uh, puravida, which doesn't have claws at all. Um, so you have, the, you have the different varieties, but what they, they, they seem to all have in common is their namesake hair, which isn't hair at all, but SETI, uh, which they use to collect bacteria growing around the hydrothermal vents and also to grow it within these, uh, what is, what's sometimes referred to as gardens on their bodies. <laughs> and then they use their delicate mouth parts to scoop up and consume the bacteria. So they are, uh, you know, they're, they're walking around growing their own food, collecting their own food, and then growing it on their own bodies. It's pretty great.
0: Well, this actually connects directly to a couple more examples I wanted to talk about. So the first one is connected by the idea of uh, these deep-sea dwelling uh, uh, crustaceans that can be found around uh, hydrothermal vents. So I came across another report of interesting crab feeding behavior. Uh, this, This was from a short 2016 article in New Scientist by Sam Wong. And the subject of this, uh, this write-up was video footage that had been captured by a robotic deep submersible that was based off of the Schmidt Ocean Institute's ship, the Falkor. And it had been exploring life around deep hydrothermal vents in the Pacific at a depth of 3,500 meters,
1: so way, way down. Uh, this was in the Mariana region. Whoa, whoa! I have to slow down there, though. It was called the Falkor, so it was named for the Wish Dragon in The NeverEnding Story? I don't know That's if That's awesome
0: that, if so. Uh well, yeah, I don't is Falcor in the never Ending story named after something else, or is that original to the book? I don't know offhand so i I cannot answer your question, but that is its name all right oh are are you gonna uh apply to set sail on the Falcor now <laughs> no, probably not but i but i I applaud the naming uh either way well so anyway the uh the submersible based off of this ship was um capturing footage of crabs that were uh, that, that were around these hydrothermal hotspots. And this particular species was known as uh, Austinogrea Williamsi. Uh, apparently not a whole lot is known about them, but they inhabit these hotspots. And like many other deep-sea creatures, they tend to be pale and lacking eyes. And so uh, as, as to the diet of these crabs, they have been observed uh, eating some regular things like snails and algae. But they have also been observed engaging in brutal cannibalism. Uh, you, you can find some video footage of this. Uh, it's it's of a particularly frenzied quality. It's just sort of like a big murder puddle of pale crabs ripping legs and claws off and, and running away with them. Uh, and, 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 of course, uh, in addition to eating other things in their environment. But on this expedition, footage was captured of these crabs doing something a little gentler, They were appearing to groom one another, eating bacteria off of the shells of conspecifics. So, uh, for example, you can see one crab going up to another crab's leg and just sort of uh, picking at it, just picking it, not pulling the leg off and running away with it as they might uh, be want to do in another uh, situation, but just sort of like grazing along the outside of the leg, getting some of this uh, this bacterial matting off of the the surface of the uh, of the exoskeleton. And this is really interesting behavior. It it makes me wonder like w- what does this indicate about the 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 nature of the crab? Is it possible this could have some kind of social role within crab society like the social grooming behaviors of primates? Uh, I mean, in on one hand, that seems kind of unlikely because these are, you know, these are crabs. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not social mammals. Um, you know, so it could just be that bacteria is delicious, and oh, uh, here's some right now on on my uh, on this uh, neighbor's leg. But I guess we don't know. Uh, that, that's the kind of thing I'd be interested to see more research about. Like, could there be a role for some type of social grooming within these uh, within these deep sea arthropod communities?
1: Interesting. Interesting. Now uh, i had in the background here, Joe, I had to do some quick research, and first of all, I can confirm that the r v Falcor is in fact named after the Wish dragon in the never ending story um, it was um, It was originally called the Sea uh, but then it was retrofitted um, uh, later uh, in uh, I believe two thousand nine or so, and then it was renamed the Falcor now, the name Falcor incidentally, Falcor is the English. Uh, name for the wish dragon in the English translation of Michael Linda's The Neverending Story. In the German, the name is Fukur, uh, F-U-C-H-U-R, derived from uh, uh, the Japanese uh, term for lucky dragon, uh, Fukuryu, uh, if I'm saying that correctly. And apparently it was changed in the English translation because um, the name Fuchur sounds too much like a an English language swear word. Okay, well, I, I feel very educated now. Um,
0: the Wait, did they change the name of the, the type of dragon in the movie? Because I remembered it from the movie as being a luck dragon. Is it a wish dragon in the book?
1: Uh, I might have accidentally said wish dragon just now, but it, it, he is, he is a, a luck dragon. Oh, okay. Uh, wish dragon is a, is, a, is a different film that I uh, also watched recently. We watch all the dragon films in my household. <laughs> okay, well, steady sailing to the Falkor. But let's get back to the world of crabs. What else do crabs eat? Okay, well, so we talked about them
0: growing bacteria on themselves and eating it off of themselves, and then in some cases, uh, performing grooming-like behaviors where they graze bacteria off of each other. But I want to move on to another parallel finding. So, okay, if you are even the slightest bit crab curious, you probably know a bit about the type of crabs known as spider crabs. This involves many different species, all belonging to the superfamily known as Magoidea. They're called spider crabs, I think, because their legs can get very long and spindly, so in some cases they actually do look like spiders. Uh, One of these animals, maybe the most remarkable spider crab, is the Japanese spider crab, or Macrocyra campferi, which is the largest extant arthropod in the world. So this is an ocean-dwelling crab that still exists today. It's not some you know, Devonian uh, Eurypterid, giant sea scorpion or something, you can find uh, these out in the ocean still. And the largest one on record had a leg span of around 3.8 meters or more than 12 feet, and it weighed something like 40-something pounds. So these things are enormous. Uh, yeah. They're mostly legs, so, you know, they're not like a solid mass that big. But if they
1: spread their legs out, it is it is bigger than human body. Yeah, you can often find uh, spider crabs at uh, at aquariums, and they're always neat to look at. I mean, they don't do much; they're they're they're, they're not really action packed, but they're very impressive specimens. But there's actually
0: another interesting thing about this superfamily, the Magoidea. About three quarters of the species in this superfamily are examples of what is known as decorator crabs. Decorator crabs are animals that live in symbiotic relationships with many different kinds of sessile organisms uh, by attaching those organisms to their exoskeletons. Rob, I've got some images for you to look at. Uh, There there are many different kinds that live in relationships with many different kinds of of other species, but generally a, a decorator crab wears other plants or animals as clothing on the outside of its shell as a form of camouflage to blend into its surroundings. And it does this by hooking these other organisms onto little bristles on its exoskeleton called SETAE, uh, S-E-T-A-E, which I've seen compared to Velcro. So this might be a sort of natural precedent for, for Velcro technology. Uh, there are lots of different kinds of other creatures that get roped into this. Some particular species of decorator crabs uh, prefer uh, algae, some prefer sponges. Some look for certain bryozoans, and some like uh, anemones that can sting.
1: Oh yeah, I think I, yeah. There's been some some interesting studies we've probably talked about on the show before about these uh, these anem- anemone uh, wielding crabs, uh, and then what, what they, they usually have one on each claw, and then if one gets taken away, they can like tear one in half in uh-huh. order to have two again. That sort of thing. Were these the boxer crabs? Yeah, I
0: think so. Well, yeah, so that example in particular of uh, anemones, that can give you a hint that sometimes these decorations on the outside of the shell do more than simply camouflage the animal as it hides among the rocks and the other flora and fauna populating the seafloor. Some of these decorator crabs select organisms that play a specific defensive role. So I was looking at a table of findings of this sort Uh, published in a book called Animal Camouflage, Mechanisms and Function, edited by Martin Stevens and Sammy uh, Miralita. And this was from Cambridge University Press in 2011. And it it lists a bunch of different examples of uh, different types of uh, Magoid crabs, along with research identifying their preferred decorations and possible reasons for that preference. So, for example, there is a type of crab known as the Inachus uh, phalangium, or the leeches spider crab. It appears to prefer a type of brown algae known as uh, Dictyota dicotoma for the parts of its body most exposed to predators. And it turns out that this species of algae is not only good camouflage, it is chemically noxious. So, it hides. this crab hides the vulnerable parts of its body Behind something that predators would probably find disgusting or even poisonous. Uh, maybe like if you were trying to you know, protect yourself from tigers by covering your back in bottles of bleach. You know, a tiger gets in there and starts biting it. It's, it's not going to want any of that. Also along these lines, there's an Atlantic spider crab called Stenocionops forcatus that preferentially attaches a species of stinging anemone to its carapace. And in both cases, these decorations would appear to provide additional defenses beyond just masking the body in the environment. But the crab from this list that I wanted to focus on has a different relationship with its preferred decoration organism. It likes to eat its own camouflage. Uh, So the animal in question is known as Nodomithrax ursus, or the hairy seaweed crab, and I think the Latin name of its uh, of its species, Ursus, implies that it's also known as the bear seaweed crab, Ursine bear. And, folks, I just want to say off the bat, this is a beautiful crab. In some cases, it looks like a cartoon animation of a crab being electrocuted. It's got, like, <laughs> know, a- animated electricity lines all around it. Also, sometimes it looks like a burst of fireworks from hell. It is just a, a gorgeous
1: arthropod. And I, I can definitely see where the name comes in because it it is it looks like it's furry like the bear, you know. Yeah, totally. Um, so it it has some natural hairs
0: that uh, that stick out from its exoskeleton, but it's also generally, well, actually, not in all environments, but in some environments, it covers itself in uh, in in these decorations that give it this additionally hairy look. Uh, so according to an entry, I was reading about it from the Museums Victoria database, the uh, Australian um, Natural History Museums. Uh, these are found in rocky shores and reefs around New Zealand and southeastern Australia. And I was further reading about this, this species in a, uh, in a research paper published in the New Zealand Journal of Marine and Freshwater Research in 1994 by Chris Woods and Colin McClay called Masking and Ingestion Preferences of the Spider-Crab Nodomithrax ursus. And what the researchers here say is that in laboratory tests, Specimens of this crab, Notomithrax ursus, were found to have preferences when it came to which organisms they would mask with. So it wasn't just any algae. There are certain kinds of algae they like to put on their shells. And uh, specifically, it was types of branched algae like Halopterus uh, spicigera and Coralina officinalis. And I actually just want to read in full a part from the introductory section of this paper that describes the process of attaching pieces of algae to the body, because I found it really fascinating to picture this routine as the crab does it. Uh, and so uh, to, as a note to help understand what I'm about to read here, the words celli and chelipeds refer to the claws. The celli are the claws, and the chelipeds are the claw legs. Okay. Ped is in foot. Yep. So the authors write, quote, the masking behavior of In-Ursus begins with the selection of a clump of algae. The crab then selects a single piece of alga using the celli in a cella over cella technique to correctly measure the piece of algae to the required size. So they're measuring it out using their claws as a, as a, as a ruler, basically. Hmm. This piece of alga is then snipped off using the chelly and transferred to the mouth parts, where the cut end is roughened and trimmed of any projections, while the uncut end is held by both chelipeds. Okay, so holding it in the claws and then chewing on the snipped end, putting it in the mouth parts to chew on it. Then, once you've chewed up the cut end good, uh, quote, one cheliped is then used to transfer the piece to a part of the body. Attachment is accomplished by rubbing it against the hooked seti so that the cut end becomes entrapped by the seti. If the algal piece does not attach at first, it is transferred back to the mouth parts to be manipulated and then taken back to the site of attachment and rubbed against the hooked seti until it attaches. If the piece of alga fails to attach after a number of attempts, it is discarded and a new piece is selected. I don't know why, but I found this kind of surprising. Something seemed kind of complex and 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 crafty ab- about this process.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it. It's it's a process that may seem you know out of beyond the the abilities of what we might uh, might generally attribute to a crab. But then again, we think about the way they eat, which we discussed in the the first episode, and it it does sound like a natural extension of that. Like this is an animal that is very that, that excels at taking things apart. Um, uh, you, know, I, you know, usually so it can fit those things in its mouth mm-hmm. uh, and, and consume it. Uh, but this is kind of a specialized version of the same thing. Manipulating uh, living things um, and then using the pieces of that thing that if you, you have manipulated. It ends up being this kind of, uh, kind of like biomancy that the, the, the crab practices.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I just love that detail about it chewing the snipped end of the alga mm-hmm. in order to roughen it so that it attaches to the Velcro on its back. Yeah. Now, another interesting fact uh, this paper mentions is that there is a lot of turnover in the crab's algae mask. Apparently, Notomithrax ursus uh, replaces a good 10 to 20% of its algae cover every 24 hours. So that would mean, you know, every roughly 5 to 10 days, it's got a new coat of algae on it. Oh, wow. And apparently decorator crabs that use algae in particular can be very strategic about its benefits as camouflage. For example, previous research, so not this study but other studies they cite, had found uh, in some decorator species that when you put a crab in a tank where it is surrounded by algae that doesn't match the color of the algae on its current mask, it will basically strip itself of the old algae and redecorate itself with the new algae to match its environment. And also research has shown that when given the option, crabs will tend to stay hidden within masses of algae that match the color of their existing mask. So these crabs can distinguish between different types of masking materials and they can make calls about masking and, and hiding behaviors to
1: maximize the camouflage effects wow that's really that's really impressive yeah it's it 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 goes beyond just this mere sort of automatic behavior that's taking place uh with like anything that it happens to come across right so
0: yeah it's not just sort of like rubbing up against a bunch of algae and getting it stuck on there it's picking the algae that will that will do the best job of, of camouflage but the researchers in this study found a different kind of discrimination in the selection of the masking material When it came to Notomithrax ursus, they found that the algae species the crabs preferred to mask with were the same ones they preferred to eat. So Mm -hmm. if you make like a ranked list of all of, of the algae that the crab will go to first to eat, which ones does it like to consume the most, that is going to be the same as the list that it will choose to put on its carapace. And, and on its legs. So in a way here, it looks like the camouflage is doubling as food storage. This crab hmm. is hiding behind a mask of its own lunch. The, the, so the, the algae on its back will help it blend in with its environment, make it look like a bunch of seaweed rather than a crab. So predators are, you know, are, are less likely to, to spot it. But then also it can eat that
1: seaweed. It can eat that algae uh, if it gets hungry. It's like if we were to imagine a, like an army sniper in one of those ghillie suits, uh, but they insisted on only camouflaging themselves with their favorite leafy greens <laughs> yeah. so that they could snack on it whilst, uh, whilst stalking, uh, you know, and and, uh, and, and waiting on their, uh, their target to appear. This
0: ghillie suit is a superfood. It's kale only. Kale ghillie suit. I love it. Though I guess it does uh, make me wonder, maybe there is an answer to this, I'm not sure, but it makes me wonder which way the adaptation goes. Like, how, how did it end up matching the food preferences and the masking preferences? Mm. Um, so, like, was it because a certain type of algae uh, was the best, you know, provided the best camouflage cover, the animal evolved to prefer eating that kind? Or was it the kind that's most delicious and nutritious, it evolves to prefer for masking?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. The crabs are silent on the matter. <laughs> All right, up next we have, uh, th- this will be a shorter uh, little uh, section here, but uh, this is something uh, you you, uh, you you pinpointed, and then I followed up by, by looking at uh, uh, the source on it. Uh, but this is the idea of crabs eating. Uh, this isn't so much crabs uh eating something remarkably different, but crabs doing it in a way we didn't expect. And that's crabs eating, quote-unquote, eating through their gills.
0: Yeah, this is interesting. So
1: circumventing the delicate mouth parts, you you don't even have to raise a jaw leg for this meal. Right. So this concerns the invasive, or at least invasive in... um, Uh, north america and i believe in africa as well uh the the invasive green shore crab uh, which we've discussed on the show before i believe Uh, in their native european waters they are sometimes harvested for food and there have been efforts in north america where it is uh, certainly invasive to encourage its use in cooking you know what are some culinary uses for this and i think there have been some some ideas of using it uh, as like a uh, you know, like like a, a soup base and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same tactic you see with, like, invasive lionfish, uh, hinging on the fact that if you really want humans to make a species disappear, make them desire that species for some reason or another, such as making it a, an ideal uh, main course at a dinner.
0: Sure. I, I think we've actually covered the greenshore crabs in a different capacity
1: on the show before. I don't remember what it was, though. Mm-hmm. So uh, as pointed out in a 2017 study from the University of Alberta, the green crabs are pretty uh, snazzy consumers in their own right because they can, again, quote unquote, eat by absorbing nutrients, specifically the amino acid um, uh, leucine across their gills. And uh, this was the first demonstration of crustaceans being able to do this. Now, the, the crabs are notoriously hardy, as you often see with an invasive species. Um, so their ability, this ability might enable them to survive long periods between meals. So I don't have anything to eat, but I can absorb some, uh, some necessary amino acids. Or it might help them cope with changes in salinity. So offsetting salinity changes via the amino acids that they can uh, absorb just straight through their gills. Okay, so they would not
0: be fully, like, sucking in chunks of food through mm-hmm. their gills and eating like that. It's it's specifically getting these particular amino acids, these particular nutrients out of the water around them as they breathe –
1: yeah, so, uh, you know, that's, again, why we put eat in quotation marks here. I guess it's kind of like, it, are, are humans eating when we absorb vitamin D via sunlight, uh, that sort of thing? Mm. Uh, are, we, are we eating when we uh, uh, get a, you know some sort of a vitamin injection or something? Yes. <laughs> okay, I've got something I was wondering about. Rob, you may have
0: seen, uh, it's a very popular genre of internet video, uh,
1: feeding crabs human food. I, you know, I don't really think I've seen uh, any of these. What kind of foods are they feeding them in these videos? Oh, everything. I've seen – I think I've seen crabs
0: eating pizza. I've seen crabs eating, you know, fruits and vegetables and, and chips and all the mm. – giving crab Doritos probably. I, I don't remember all the specifics. But, you know, I've seen a good bit of this in my day. All right. Uh, clearly, it's funny to look at, you know. Right. A, this a is, this e- is kind of a it thinks it's people sort of thing, right? Exactly. A crab eating a Dorito is inherently comedic. I don't know if it's good for the crab though. Then again, lots of crabs are scavengers, you know, they'll eat what what they can get. Um, So, so I guess I'm not too worried about the crabs, but, uh, (laughs) but, but I just wondered, is there anything interesting
1: to cover about the phenomenon of crabs eating human food? All right, so we cannot speak for all crabs. We will not speak for all crabs. But one fun place uh, uh, to to look for some answers, uh, I thought, would be to look to the realm of hermit crabs as pets. Joe, did you ever have a hermit crab as a pet? I did not. Did you? I've always wanted one, but um, it's never been permitted. <laughs> um, I'm always like, that looks like it'd be a great pet, and 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 whoever is in my life is always like, I don't know if you need that, and they're they're probably correct.
0: You, so you mean your family now is preventing you from getting hermit crabs?
1: Uh, right. I think it's yeah, you know, I think the argument <laughs> is it, a hermit crab is either too much pet or not enough pet. Uh, mm. So it's either a situation where like uh really you know ask yourself do we have space and time for this creature to live in our life as well or it's a question of is there something more exciting we could have like a lizard and that's like that's where we are now we have a we have a leopard gecko we skipped over hermit crab and went straight to leopard gecko This is a vertebrate household. (laughs) So uh, to be clear, there are more than 1,000 hermit crab species, and you can roughly divide them all up into marine hermit crabs and terrestrial hermit crabs. Uh, So your sea dwellers and then your land dwellers. and uh, there are a few different species that are popular pets from either category. But the ones most likely to encounter human food are, of course, those terrestrial crabs. So I thought I might look at some terrestrial hermit crab feeding guides for some ideas. Okay. So I went to the Spruce Pets. This is, I think it's from the same people who do like the Spruce Eats. Uh, And they point out that commercial hermit crab diets are probably the best way to go if you're feeding a hermit crab because these are balanced and they contain everything that they might need. Because in general, you know, matching up with pretty much everything we've been talking about here, they're going to have a varied diet. They are opportunistic, land-roving omnivores. So they're going to eat a little bit of this, a little bit of that in the natural world, and you need a food source that reflects that. They're on the seafood diet. I see food, I eat it. Pretty much, yeah. So uh, they recommend – I'm going to roll through a lot of foods here. Uh, they recommend such fresh foods as mango, papaya, coconut, fresh or dried. And I have to add that I can certainly back up the coconut suggestion because um, I got to watch a whole bunch of hermit crabs go absolutely crazy over a busted open coconut once. And it was it was amazing. It was a feeding frenzy. Where, where were you seeing the wild hermit crabs? I believe this was in Belize, if memory serves. Oh, okay. All right, but in addition to this, uh, apples, applesauce, bananas, grapes, pineapples, strawberries, melons, carrots, spinach, watercress, leafy green lettuces, but not iceberg lettuce because, you know, the, the nutrient issue there, uh, mm. broccoli, grass, leaves, strips of deciduous tree bark, unsalted nuts, occasional peanut butter, raisins, <laughs> dried seaweed, uh, crackers, unsweetened cereals, plain rice cakes, plain popcorn on occasion, freeze-dried shrimp, freeze-dried plankton, brine shrimp, uh, fish food flakes, and much more.
0: <laughs> okay, so it looks to me like this, uh, this list of suggestions from this website is suggesting a, a wide range of different kinds of foods, but seems to be avoiding
1: uh, things that have added sugar or salt. Yeah, they point out that the crabs may seem very interested in salty and sweet snacks like chips and sweet breakfast cereals, but these are to be avoided. They say also stay away from dairy products, which makes sense when would when would a crab get a dairy product in the natural uh, world. Um uh, and they they say that, her, that the hermes are generally going to be game for fresh or dried fruits of any kind, but some experts advise against highly acidic or citrus foods, so like maybe don't give them a lemon or a tomato. Mm-hmm. Also starch veggies like potatoes are to be avoided, um, as well as again low nutrient iceberg lettuce.
0: What, what I, I, all this hating on iceberg lettuce? I love iceberg lettuce. I'm going to go out on a limb right here. I'm
1: going to say iceberg lettuce is awesome. I mean, it uh, iceberg lettuce can be awesome, but the question is, what are you getting out of it? Well, I don't know what you're getting out of it nutrient wise, but it's delicious, crunchy, crunchy goodness. All right, fair, fair enough. Just keep it away from the hermit crabs. Um, now, uh, also hermit crabs require calcium. So remember that bone gnawing we mentioned from the last episode involving other crabs? Uh, it kind of oh, yeah. plays into into this scenario. Uh, calcium addition, probably not gonna come as a surprise to many pet owners out there. I know with our leopard gecko, we have to, we have to um, shake its crickets up in a bag with a calcium powder to ensure that it's getting enough calcium and then also leave some calcium out for it in a little tiny dish. Um, but with crabs, uh, you can end up using reptile-ready calcium supplements like this, but also you might end up using something like crushed oyster shells or, or cuddle bone as something that they can use to get their um, their calcium.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay, so tying it back to the last episode, I was just remembering the uh, suggestion. This was not proven, but it was it was hypothesized that maybe— one reason uh, duck-billed dinosaurs had been eating a bunch of crustaceans that might have been crabs or some other, you know, related crustaceans that have these these hard shells was that they were looking for certain nutrients types of protein or specifically calcium as mm-hmm. part of their uh, breeding and uh, reproduction cycle.
1: Yeah. Now, one more, one more note from this uh, Spruce article uh, because it's just – it's so crab. I love it. Uh, they say, quote, hermit crabs are able to find their food in two ways – by smelling the food and by seeing other hermit crabs eating, <laughs> hermit crab dietary peer pressure, yeah, so they might be like, "I detect food over there, or it's like that hermit crab's eating something I'm in i'm gonna go I'm gonna go try and steal some of that. Oh, the hermit crabs, like Billy gets to eat iceberg lettuce, Billy gets to <laughs> eat pizza, yeah. But obviously, I, like I say, I do not have a, hermit, a, a pet hermit crab. I've never had one. I've just gotten to observe some in the wild and, you know, look at them in pet stores. So if there are any hermit crab enthusiasts out there uh, and you have particular thoughts on this, if you can tell us, uh, you know, what foods your hermit crab prefers the most, uh, which ones you, you like to give them, uh, definitely write in and let us know. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear from that. If really, anybody out there with, with crab expertise or crab uh, you know, r- write in. <laughs> Have you ever had part of your body eaten by hermit crabs? Oh, well, what was that like? <laughs> hermit crabs do—they just have a lot of character. I love—I love watching them.
0: Uh, yeah, actually, I, I recall one uh, nature documentary segment. I, I honestly don't remember what it was from, but I think it was something narrated by by Attenborough. Um, but it was a segment that was showing hermit crabs forming a chain of shell trading. So, like, they were all trying to trade shells uh Mm -hmm. to get a bigger shell and they formed up in a line essentially to each switch into the next one's shell
1: yeah there have been essentially like biology economics uh articles that have looked at this like how do they go about um you know trading up uh on their their shell size and then uh, you know because if one leaves its shell for a bigger shell then that opens up a shell for a uh, uh, another growing hermit crab to take advantage of it it's it's really fun so the adaptation
0: there, I guess, would have to involve the hermit crab observing when a bigger hermit crab is likely to be leaving its shell for, for a bigger one. So, I, yeah, that would take some kind of social observance, kind of like what you're talking about with the hermit crabs, watching other hermit crabs eat.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think also they're, they're all about um, uh, stealing as well. If they oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah loves it. So it's, it's, a, it's a crab, kind of a crabby crab world. But who comes up
0: with these rules? You can steal somebody else's shell, but you can't eat iceberg lettuce. I don't know. <laughs>
1: no, they will eat the iceberg lettuce. It's not that they don't want it. I think, I think the idea is like they will eat it, but it's just they deserve better. Okay, coming up soon, we're going to do a whole episode on
0: iceberg lettuce. It'll be about how iceberg lettuce is the king of foods. It's amazing. <laughs> I know that what iceberg lettuce must not occur in nature. Whoever created this strain
1: of, of vegetable is, is really deserves great credit. <laughs> all right well we're going to go ahead and close it out there but yeah again write in we'd love to hear from you uh let us know if there are other examples of curious crab cuisines that uh that, we, that we're not familiar with or didn't have time to cover here uh we'll mention it in an upcoming listener mail episode also yes uh, hermit crab owners write in and tell us all about your babies in the meantime, if you would like to uh, listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed that uh, is found anywhere you get your podcasts. Just, you know, make sure you subscribe, then you can get everything, uh, including our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, our listener mail episodes on Mondays, our artifact short form episodes on Wednesday, and then on Friday you get Weird House Cinema. That's our time to just talk about a strange film of one sort or another.
0: Huge thanks as a- Always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.